ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to A Big Country. I'm Clint Jasper. It's great to have your company. This week, we're joining artists combing the beach on South Australia's limestone coast in search of unusual seaweed to study and inspire artworks. We'll hear how a passion for working with leather led a couple to a new life in a small rural Queensland community where they've established a saddlery and run workshops teaching leather craft. And we'll meet a lifelong travelling performer who's finally found a place to settle down in country Victoria. But she's still pursuing her purpose of bringing joy to others. I just like bringing joy. And I do a little bit of everything, um, clowning and a little bit of juggling, a little bit of magic, my trick dogs and, of course, the music. Yeah, it's hard to settle down when you've been born into the circus. Show business just in the blood. You just keep moving. We'll meet that lifelong clown who's still performing tricks and entertaining young audiences. That is coming up. First today, we're catching up with a former ABC presenter who swapped the microphone for winemaking. Cameron Wilson, who once presented the Country Hour and Bush Telegraph and worked as a rural reporter, was drawn to the wine industry even when he was reporting on it. It's been eight years since he left the studio to become a winemaker and he hasn't looked back. Larissa Smith had a chat with Cameron at his new vineyard at Scottsdale in northeast Tasmania. Okay, so this is Pinot here. This is a clone called um, 115 and it's in its third year now. So what I'm doing is just pruning. Each winter's time to prune and because um, these are young, I'm just trying to get these established. So I'm taking the, the vine back to just two buds. So it'll grow two shoots over the spring this year that hopefully get it up to the wire here. So it's all about trying to get root development at this stage and strengthen the strengthen the vine before we try and force it into production. So this is, this is sort of the... Uh, where the patience comes in. Got to wait for three or four years and it can be expensive and a bit frustrating, but it's about getting a good, um, good healthy vine to begin with. Talk me through where you've planted these vines and the gorgeous spot that you've picked yeah, it's uh, nice, to, to grow it? them in. <laughs> yeah, so we're in Scottsdale. We're just outside of Scottsdale, East Minston Road. Uh, so about 10 minutes out of town towards the sidling and we're about 300 metres up here. It's about 300 metres above sea level and we're facing northeast. You can see 10 mile track down the bottom and uh, the road that'll take you down to St Helens if you keep driving for the next hour and a half. Not really a wine region, is it? You don't see too many vines around here. This is grazing property originally. Um, My grandfather ran um, both cattle and sheep here for for a long time. He established this farm back in the, the early 60s with his brother. I guess it's more because it's the family property. That's why the vines are here rather than, than I guess, saying where's the best place to put grapes. I don't know anything about cattle. I don't know anything about sheep, but I found myself working in uh, wine. Um, so we had this nice northeast-facing block here. It's um, just a couple of acres to get started with. So we thought we'd plant it to Pinot and Chardonnay and see how we go. This is quite the transition because a lot of people listening would be familiar with your voice, Cameron, as a former Tasmanian Country Hour presenter and also presenter of uh, ABC's Bush Telegraph on Radio National. Uh, you left that job uh, quite a few years ago and, and pursued a, another passion. Yeah, I like how you say I left the job. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> you were made redundant. Yeah, so I got, I got shown the door in 2014 with one of the numerous ABC shake-ups at the time. So that was... Um, that was the end then, but that time when I had a young family and um, probably didn't suit me to 
to move around anymore um, to try and pursue other interests with the ABC. And um, I was living in a wine region down the coast, about an hour and a half out of Melbourne, and I'd been studying um, wine science up in Wagga Wagga anyway. So I thought, oh, well, I'll, um, I'll give that a crack. So it took you to the Mornington Peninsula to grow grapes for some other companies first? So I moved to Mornington because I had to live by the coast and for lifestyle, and I needed a wine region because... I've been studying it. If I was going to have the opportunity to work in it, it had to be there. So I just got a job, like a harvest job, working vintage in the in the winery at a place called Montalto, which is a sort of medium-sized winery over there. I've ended up, you know, there ever since and now as a, working as a winemaker there. Um, you know, got a little bit more experience up in the Yarra at a place called Oak Ridge and went over to Sonoma in California to see how the Americans do it. And um, then back at Montalto, and it's just sort of taken a while, but got to the point now where I work as a winemaker there, yeah. So what's the long-term plan for this vineyard? You know, you, you're based in Mornington, the grapes are grown in Tasmania. How are you going to marry the two? Yeah, it's a challenge. It's, it's hard, especially with a young family as well that are, that are very happy where we are. Like, life's good where we live. You know, we're a couple of minutes from the beach, kids have got good friends. It's, um, it's a good spot. But, yeah, how this is going to work, I don't know, to be honest, but at the moment my parents live here. They do a lot of the work. I've got people that are helping uh, and I get over here as often as I can. And I figure we've just got to find a way of getting through each challenge in terms of the, the time requirements and the money that it needs and just sort of bite them off one at a time. Then once I'm in production, I should be, should be okay. But it do, it'll need to get bigger than this. This won't sustain me and my family and, and other people involved you know, at the size and scale it is at the moment. Do you see this area growing as far as a, a wine pocket is consent because there's you're surrounded by forestry coops and and fields of potatoes and cattle yeah yeah it's <laughs> that paddock over there just um to our left uh, that's a that's a forestry block there and it's home to a lot of wallabies which is a pain in the bum you'll see we put wallaby fencing in around the vineyard um so that, that yeah there are some challenges there look it's not a it's not a wine region is it it's it's grazing and potatoes and but i look at the hewan and I see what's happened there in, in a relatively short period of time. I look at even Gippsland back in Victoria and you see what's happened there. And you go further back, look at Canberra and Murrum Bateman. There's people that have a go and make it work and it doesn't take many g- good producers to put an area on the map. In, case, in fact, it can take one or two. Um, and we've got Oxbury down the road here. Uh, they're not far away at all. They're, they're, they're 10 years further on than I am here. And I think what they're doing is great. So I don't see why Scottsdale can't be a wine region. There was one point where I sort of would always go, oh, yeah, we put grapes in in the northeast of Tassie. It's not far from Piper's River. Because I just thought, well, that sounds like it's a wine region. But, you know, you know why not just go, no, it's Scottsdale. It's, it's, it can work here. Why not? You know, it doesn't mean it's not going to still be a grazing and potato area. That's fine. But it can be a wine area as well. Do you miss radio? Uh, rarely, rarely. <laughs> I do when I have a good idea for a story, which isn't that often. <laughs> it probably was my downfall. I think I'm better suited to this, to be honest. You know, you look back, there's people that are good at radio and people that are good reporters, and I, was, I don't think I was ne- ever naturally one of those people. So I think, I think I'm probably better suited to this, yeah. It's a cold winter's morning, temperatures are around 3 degrees and this beach in Port Macdonnell on the southeast coast of South Australia is covered in seaweed. It's usually a cue to head back into the car and go home, but the conditions are not deterring these citizen scientists 
and passionate artists. I feel particularly privileged to walk on our beaches here, unpolluted, very little traffic, and just to be able to breathe the beautiful southern ocean, fresh air as it comes in. Crisp mornings, even like this morning, we got up early to be here uh, before dawn, and I think that just sets your day, you've got an early start, it just feels good. It's a bit hard to explain uh, unless you do it. Hello, I'm Sam Brabrook, and I'm catching up with some of the participants in an art project who are using seaweed as inspiration for their work. The Holdfast Art Project is bringing together art, science and Aboriginal culture to tell the story of the life washing up on the shore along the state's limestone coast. While clumps of seaweed on the beach can look ugly to some, there's also a beauty that's been recognised by the Indigenous Bowendik people for generations. Uncle Ken Jones says Bowendik people have a special relationship with the ocean. Aboriginal people all around the world have eaten seaweed and, and gathered and, and used seaweed for various different purposes. But here on Bowendik country, our limestone coast, our Bowendik people thrived actually by, by living off the land. Kangaroos and emus of course, but uh, fish and the fact that we could enhance the flavours of our fish and our, our game by using seaweed as herbs and spices. Some of our seaweed is really amazing, tastes really lovely and of course very nutritious. We're yet to understand and appreciate how valuable the vitamins and mineral contents of our seaweed is. From the beaches of Port Macdonald, select samples of the seaweed will be taken to a back shed in Mount Gambier that's been transformed into the project's studio. It's where budding artists will study, draw and create a variety of art using seaweed as their inspiration. Joe Fife is heading the project up and says it's been a rewarding process. We're wanting to inform people about the importance of algae and in the particular region, Port Macdonald, because of the lack of glacial activity and the bonny upwelling, we have a more species than anywhere else in the world, which is, you know, makes our area pretty unique. And people, you know, they walk along the beach and they look at the smelly old seaweed that's been washed up, you know, thinking it's a waste. But in actual fact, it's quite, it's good for our seas. Sally O'Connor is another artist helping lead the project. When she was younger, she studied seaweed at university and is now using that knowledge to help the artists understand what they're creating. One of the reasons that I was interested in being involved in the project was to be able to develop some of my own art because I've come to that quite late in life, so I've got a lot of catching up to do. Also to be able to look inside the plants as well. So part of the project, we applied for a microscope and so I've been doing some work microscopically as well. But even just using your iPhone to take a photo of the algae, particularly once we've floated it into these baths, then you can see much more detail. Miss O'Connor says everyone can learn a lot from the seaweed on our shores. When you see it on the beach, it just looks as if it's splat. It's been dumped there, which it has. But if you pick it up and look at it, look at the different parts of it individually, you can get a much better understanding of it. 
Sally O'Connor, one of the participants in an art project that's taking inspiration from seaweed on South Australia's limestone coast. She was speaking with reporter Sam Bradbrook. You can see more on that story on the ABC website. Just look for the A Big Country program page. I'm Clint Jasper with you for A Big Country. Still to come, the circus performer who's made her home in a quiet country town after a life on the road as a travelling entertainer. These days, she's sharing her tricks with young audiences at the local show. And we'll meet a couple who've taken a leap of faith, leaving behind high-paying careers in the mining industry to open up a shop selling custom-made saddles. Reporter Jennifer Nichols spoke to David and Tanya Earle, who moved to Wandai in Queensland's South Burnett region, where they're collaborating with other skilled leather workers, running classes for locals and tourists. In a saddler's workshop in country Queensland, Australia's reigning champion leather platter, Chris Barr, has been invited to teach a whip-making class. You start with four-strand stuff. We use kangaroo hide. It's the strongest leather for its thickness in the world, and it can be taken down very, very fine. The most strings that I've used in a handle on a stock whip is 96 and those strands are about 0.6, of a millimetre wide. Wow. Chris Barr's most intricate hand-dyed rawhide whips sell for thousands of dollars to international collectors. USA, Canada, Switzerland, Sweden, Germany, all over the world, stuff that I've made. And here you are sharing your craft with people who really want to learn. Yeah, it's good. We've got young fella here, Sam, he's only 15. He's doing a really great job. So it's good to see some younger people taking an interest in it. Yeah. Dad booked me in for a course for my birthday, so I thought I should try and make a whip today. And do you use a whip at home? Yeah, i got two, using them cattle and stuff and working around the farm with them. What's it feel like to be seeing one be created under your hands? Oh, it's pretty crazy to see how these people make whips all day and they're pretty nice whips. A lot of effort and hard work has gone into them. I'm just helping Christopher with the whips because, well, that's the kind of braiding I do anyway, but why would I need to make a whip when one of my (laughs) best mates is the best whip maker in the world, in my opinion? Chris Barr's business partner, Diana Balhorn, specialises in horsemanship clinics and handcrafts intricate custom orders of original horse tack accessories. A lot of it is American-based, Californian style, because that's where I learned my trade. I, I live there with a famous old rawhide and roping chap on a ranch. His name was Bill Dorrance. He and his brother Tom were instrumental in the beginning of quite a large horsemanship movement in the world. People have travelled several hours to come to this whip-making class and the love of leather is creating new opportunities. We've got a kids' belt-making workshop coming up. We've got a wallet-making workshop coming up. As a child, David Earl got the leather-working bug on a visit to a master craftsman in Maryborough. While we were there, old Lenny Jensen sat me down in front of some leather. I probably would have been about 10, 11 year old. And yeah, let me have at it. And I think I've been hooked ever since, yeah. Growing up, I've made my own belts and wallets and all that sort of stuff. And then it just grew from there. He worked on his skills at a quarter horse stud, then became a leather salesman. But for many years, life took David Earle a different way. I was working out west on drill rigs, working in the mines and... It just got to a point where travel and everything just got a bit too much. The lure of leather beckoned. Working my own little saddlery from home and had saddles on the books to make and it just got to a point where one was outweighing the other and it was time to bite the bullet and give the drilling away and go back to doing saddlery full time. 
leather's just flat or in rolls. We wet it, shape it, cut it, mould it, skive it, stitch it. With the support of his wife, Tanya, David Earle set up shop in Wandai, a small country town in Queensland's South Burnett. We'd already been running the saddlery from home anyway, so we already had an online presence. Nonetheless, it's very daunting stepping away from a six-figure income into doing your own business and I had stepped away from paid employment to start my own business as well so it was a huge step of faith. It's not so much a dying trade like everyone seems to think that saddlery is a dying trade but there's still a, a large need for saddles here in Australia. It's an investment it's not something you take lightly when they get made. We take a lot of things into account the age of your horses and all that sort of stuff. We don't want a saddle just for just one horse and we don't want it to be a throwaway we want something that's going to last a long time. And it seems people are willing to wait for a custom-made saddle. At the moment, we're about eight to ten months. Yeah, I've currently got about 15 or 18 saddles currently on the books to be made. And they range from our standard stock saddle through to roping saddles, wade saddles, and uh, now we've got a couple of um, cutting saddles to make as well. Yeah. Any dressage saddles? No, in your no, books? no, <laughs> no, no, no. We don't, we don't deal in the dressage industry or the show jumping industry. We're, we're here specifically for stock people and working class and, and those people who would like a stock saddle or a western saddle. When someone's saying to me that they enjoy riding them, it makes it well worthwhile. And Wondai is such a beautiful little old town. It is. We're right on the rail trail. And if you were to drop a pin in the South Burnett, Wondai is like dead spot in the centre. It is definitely getting traction and attraction. Uh, there are a few old buildings here that have been recently bought by people who have vision as well. And they want to turn Wondai into what Kenilworth and Montville are now and draw people out of the Sunshine Coast and the Wide Bay and Brisbane to come and experience the South Burnett and all we have to offer. And you've got a free camp right in the middle of town. We have a free camp but we've also got the showgrounds as well which are beautiful camping if you don't want free camp and lots of Airbnbs and lots of wineries. So. <laughs> Well, I was born into the circus and performing family. My brother was a knife thrower and my parents were performers. Dad was a fire eater and they had a mental telepathy act, a, a very good mind reading act. From her home in Victoria's Western District, Julie Honey is reflecting on an interesting and eventful life as a travelling performer. Mum would put the blindfold on and Dad would walk round and people would hand him things and he'd just ask her, what have I got in my hand? And she'd tell them it was a, a very, very good act, which performed all over the world. And anyway, I was born with Worths. I think Ashton's is the oldest and Worths and Bullens. But they left the circus after a while and travelled the world again with their cabarets on the Gold Coast. <laughs> I've been clowning since I was eight years old and I clowned with my brother. My brother was three years older than me and they, we used to put on these little shows and Dad would do the magic and the fire eating and, you know, we'd go around little towns like this and rent a hall and put on a little variety show and we were the clowns. I just like bringing joy and I do a little bit of everything, um, clowning and a little bit of juggling, a little bit of magic, my trick dogs, and of course the music. It's a long straight road, the engine's deep. I can't help it. 
another good night's sleep After the long, long call of the road is calling me when I was 15, I went on tour with Rusty Greaves, a country music singer in New Zealand. And I also sang with the Joe Brown Miss New Zealand show. And yeah, I've done a lot of different things um, in my life. Yeah, it's hard to settle down when you've been born into the circus. Show business just in the blood, you just keep moving. Julie Honey has finally settled down. All right. And the boys and girls would like to see him jump for a small hoop. You ready? Okay, Zen, jump. Come on. Hello, I'm Emily Bisland, and I'm visiting Julie at her home that's right on the highway in the small farming town of Merino. She bought her home sight unseen. It sits behind an historic crumbling down shop. Large trucks laden with freight rumble past her house constantly. But after a life spent on the road, she loves it. Yeah, and and this is why this is why I love living here. When I do come home and live here, you know, I'm not I'm not in the sound of silence. I've still got the truckers. As a little girl growing up in the circus, Julie's world was unique. She was surrounded by wild animals, magicians, and acrobats. Well, when I was growing up. Um, we weren't with the circus, we were actually doing carnivals and there was a guy who had performing chimps in New Zealand and he had this little baby chimp called Charlie and every morning we'd get up and have breakfast and Charlie'd be sitting out on the mat with his nappy on and we'd all go and sit with him. I was about seven or eight years old. We all go and play toys with Charlie the chimp and, you know, I suppose we were actually babysitting Charlie now that I think about it. But what a great life and... And, you know, and other things that were, you take for granted. You just take them for granted. The baby cub, line cubs and all that. It's and the elephants and to us it's just all part of life. Tigers and lions and elephants and monkeys and ponies. That was my job. I used to do the pony rides with Ridgeways and do the walk around clowning when they're pulling the line cage down with my trick dog. and. I've been making fairy floss for over 60 years. <laughs> it's it's mind-boggling when you think about it, but you all learn how to make the fairy floss and how to do the, stick the hot dogs. Though she's always moved around, one constant in Julie's life is her trick dogs. She's been training animals since she was a teenager. My first trick animal, I was given this big old English pointer, Sam. And a friend of mine who's a great horse trainer, he's passed now, but Stuart Lear was a wonderful horse trainer, and he was training this little pony and nobody was allowed to watch him train. He wouldn't give his secrets away. And I'd sneak down and hide in the stable or hide behind something, but he'd always find me. And after about a week of it, he'd give up and he said, Righto, Vaughnie, you sit there and you watch, but you don't tell anybody what you see. And I said, OK, Uncle Stuart. He said, but I don't know why you want to watch. He said, you don't even own a pony. Anyway, I watched him, and within two weeks, I'd trained my big English pointer to do the whole act, the Liberty Act that the pony was doing. So he had a few laughs and cackles about that. And ever since then, I was 13 at that time, and ever since then, over the years, he'd show me all his little secrets. And, and then later on in life, I just started getting dogs and training them. And Julie has two tiny trick dogs, 
Flash and Zen, who she rescued. They jump through tiny little hula hoops, they walk the plank, and they stand up on their hind legs and push barrels along. It's very cute, and the kids at the local show love it. I enjoy seeing the smiles on people's faces, and I remember once I was up in Mount Isa and I went to perform at a nursing home, and I had a very small miniature trick horse. And one of the nurses said to me, would it be possible to bring the little horse into a room? When I took him in, there was this old Aboriginal stockman, and he was in his late 90s. And the little horse put his head up on the bed and the stockman stroked him, and the smile on his face was worth a million dollars. And when I walked out, the nurse said to me, you don't realise that guy hasn't smiled for 10 years. And, you know, that's, that's worth all the money in the world when you can bring joy like that. And it took me a long time to work out what I, was, what I was meant to do, what my purpose on the planet was. And, you know, I'm quite happy to say, well, that's what my purpose is, to bring joy and to help people. Lifelong clown Julie Honey, she spoke to Southwest Victorian reporter Emily Bisland. And you can see more on that story, including a video of Julie performing with her trick dogs. Check it out on the ABC homepage. Head to abc.net.au and look for A Big Country under the program's pages. That's the show for today. I'll chat to you again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.